Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be covering the decision-making process that went into the invasion of Iraq, and we had an interesting conversation with Dr. Michael Mazar, who is a uh, political scientist at the RAND Corporation, which is one of the most well-known think tanks in the world at this point. But before we get into that, as always, feel free to follow us on Spotify or uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can follow us on social media on Instagram or Facebook at History Does You to keep up with upcoming episodes, giveaways, and all of that. And before we get into that, I want to give some updates regarding season two, the microphone, um, and all of that. So um, first off, in terms of season two, uh, we're looking pretty good for that. I think my big project for uh, that season is going to be a three-part series on the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, Obviously, with season one, I did a three-part series on ancient Rome. And with the U.S.-China relationship, I know it's obviously a lot of its current events, Um, I'm going to try and integrate history into that as much as possible um, just to kind of get, you know, a deeper understanding of what the U.S.-China relationship means in turn in the kind of the view of history. Uh, And so there's a lot of moving parts with that series in terms of um, interviews and all of that. So it might not be right away. I'm hoping it will. But obviously with people's schedules and stuff, um, that might not be perfect. So Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. In terms of the microphone, another big thing is I'm looking to upgrade the microphone. Obviously, for this season, I've used a cheap $30 one from Amazon, so the audio quality probably hasn't been the best. I've gotten some feedback on that, that it hasn't been the best, so that's kind of, that's one thing I'm looking to upgrade. I'm going to get a nicer microphone so that this part of the, uh, that this is kind of the best it can be. Um, I haven't received specific feedback on the interviews. I think for the most part, it's been pretty good. The vast majority of my interviews have been either Skype or over a phone interview. And I think obviously Skype, you can record directly. So that uh, audio quality is going to be the best. Over the phone, it's fine. It's not the best. And then with in-person, I think I've only done uh, two or three in-person interviews. But obviously with the COVID, you know, to be honest, I have no idea when you know, the next in-person interview will actually be, which is nice because I was looking to upgrade that equipment as well. But again, all of that, you know, costs a substantial amount of money. Uh, And as a college student, I don't have a ton of money at the moment. So I'm definitely, I think for season two, I'm definitely going to upgrade the microphone. Now getting into today's topic, which is the decision-making process that went into Iraq, I Actually, this sort of was a spur of the moment interview. So it actually worked out fine that, you know, September 11 attacks, which we did last week, and then we did the decision making into Iraq. And I think the big thing is obviously they're two separate events. The, you know, the September 11th attacks didn't necessarily lead directly to the invasion of Iraq, but it influenced the decision making into Iraq heavily. I think that's something that often gets overlooked. And I think a lot of people sort of try and separate. I think when they look at the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan as two separate things, when in fact, they're really sort of the same thing, which was this global war on terror that the Bush administration decided to prosecute after the September 11th attacks. But even before the September 11th attacks happened, you had the Iran-Iraq war, you had the Persian Gulf War. And those are two key events that happened because the you know we supported the Iraqis during the Iran war. We've always sort of you know seen Iran you know as a enemy 
and we continue to to this day. So Iraq was always seen as sort of a proxy to combat Iranian aggression. But that sort of changes with the Persian Gulf War and Saddam's uh, decision to invade Kuwait. And obviously, I think uh, the Persian Gulf War is the culmination of years and years of military you know, buildup and experience that we really hadn't been able to use during the Cold War, which we unleashed during the Persian Gulf War to extreme effect. And I think it shocked a lot of great powers or a lot of powers in, in the world at that time, specifically China and Russia at, Russia at the you know, awesome effect of the combined force of, you know, the U.S. military um, in terms of air, land, and naval assets all kind of working in sync to destroy, you know, a third-rate army. But regardless, it was over in, you know, three days. I mean, and, but I think another key thing was that, you know, sort of left this idea of unfinished business, which we'll discuss, was that the Bush, the first Bush administration decided not to pursue the Iraqi army into Iraq. They thought that an occupation would be costly. It would be exactly what would happen almost, you know, 11 years later, which is kind of crazy just to think that, you know, there were clearly people in the U.S. government, U.S. military that foresaw issues of trying to occupy the country, specifically because of the, you know, the divide between Sunni and Shiite, the cultural differences, the resources that would have to be used in order to prosecute a conflict like that. But in many ways, I think the September 11th attacks, you know, gave the vigilance to the second Bush administration that the first one didn't have. So it felt like it was pursuing sort of a righteous foreign policy against extremism and the religion of Islam and it just, I think, spiraled out of control. And I think it sort of blinded not just the Bush administration. You have to remember that I think Congress and Senate are just as responsible for sort of allowing those things to happen, even though they were, quote unquote, duped, like I think a lot of people said. But I think it just blinded the decision-making process and made it, I think, emotional to the point where, you know, their decisions weren't being questioned, decisions weren't being vetted in a way that, it should have been. So, I mean, that's kind of my initial take on it. I'll get right into the interview because I don't want to talk too much. Uh, it's a great interview. Um, he's super knowledgeable. Um, he's written extensively on this subject and has a great book. So if you're really interested in foreign policy at all or sort of, you know, case studies about U.S. intervention, I would highly recommend this book. I think it reveals a lot of, you know, what goes into the decision making process when the United States decides to go to war in the 21st century. So, yeah. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Michael J. Mazar. He is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Previously, he worked at the U.S. National War College, where he was professor and associate dean of academics. In the past, he was also a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a senior defense aide on Capitol Hill, and was a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His work includes Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy, Rethinking Risk and National Security, and North Korea and the Bob. So uh, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And to start off, uh, what is your favorite part of foreign policy to research and talk about? Uh, why is it your favorite, and why have you so mu focused so much on the Iraq War? Um, well, yeah, so two different questions there. Uh, actually, in answer to the first question, I don't, I'm really a generalist, and that's sort of the thing that I love the most. I don't have a particular issue or region that I specialize in all the time. I mean, I work on national security strategy, generally speaking, but um, the thing that has kept me most interested in the field for 30 years has been the 
opportunity to just keep working on different kinds of things. Um, and in terms of Iraq, the thing that got me interested was um, in 2002, I went to work for the U.S. National War College, which is a school for senior military officers and uh, folks from state and the intelligence community. Um, and so shortly after the Iraq war began, started to get folks coming back um, from some very early service there. And then gradually, of course, as the years unfolded um, and pretty quickly within the first uh, year had a sense that um, obviously the uh, operation had not been particularly well planned and there was a lot that went wrong in ways that was sort of confusing. Um, and so that kind of sparked my interest in figuring out what happened, why it happened, why they made the decision that they did. And to follow up, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered uh, while researching these different topics? Um, so, you know, I'll just speak to the Iraq one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, depending on the issue, there's there's particular issues of, of uh, you know, data accessibility or classification or different kinds of things. The Iraq one, the biggest challenge ended up being um, trying to get access to documents that were not already declassified, which proved to be basically impossible. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that's come out in various for various uh, reasons, some associated with Doug Feith's book, some associated with Donald Rumsfeld's book, um, and some other batches that were declassified fairly early on of, of memos and things from the decision process. Um, but apart from that, um, basically, the DOD uh, and other entities of the U.S. government have used various means to, at least in terms of the FOIA requests that I was doing, uh, basically prevent any other significant documents related to the decision from coming out. So that was the biggest frustration. And to kind of get into the decision making uh, that went to Iraq, which we'll be talking about today, uh, to begin, how did the Persian Gulf War and the failure to destroy uh, Saddam's army affect U.S. policy towards Iraq? Yeah, so uh, basically it, it affected it by leaving in place a continuing threat. You know, as you know, um, there was a decision made in the first Bush administration in 1991 that they were not going to go to Baghdad uh, for a lot of reasons that turned out to be very valid in 2003. Um, and that the the way that the Gulf War ended uh, obviously left Saddam in power, um, and it left a number of senior U.S. officials with a sense of unfinished business. That both because of the threat he posed to the region and because of his tyranny, um, that we should have done more than we did, and we didn't end up doing enough. And uh, that was fairly much in the background the first couple of years. Um, by about ninety five, ninety six, it becomes much more uh, apparent. Um, and by 98, 99, you have uh, a general bipartisan consensus on the part of a lot of, not all, but a lot of senior national security experts and officials that uh, we should have taken Saddam out. And now the United States had to find a way to do that, not necessarily by invading, but by some other means. So the basic effect was to, um, you know, leave in place a sense, uh, both a, a specific threat and a sense on the part of U.S. officials that more had to be done. And how, in the aftermath of the war, how, what was uh, U.S. policy or strategy towards Iraq over kind of the next decade? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, essentially it, it devolves eventually into what was called dual containment, which was the idea that both Iraq and Iran were threats. Um, they had 
in theory, balanced each other somewhat during the Iran-Iraq war, but that the U.S. now had to be in the business of worrying about both of them and containing both of their military aggression. So, you know, it's basically a version of containment. Um, for most of the 1990s, Saddam was pretty quiet during that time. There were, in 1994, some rumors that he was thinking about invading Kuwait again. There were reports during the Clinton administration that um, he had tr put in in process an effort to try to assassinate former President Bush at that time, which was one of the reasons for one of the U.S. attacks on uh, Iraq. So uh, U.S. policy was basically containment, and which was enforced in part with regional presence and then with occasional attacks on Saddam. But always this sense of like Iraq's a back burner issue. Nobody wants to have to deal with it. Nobody wants to have to um, attend to the practical ramifications of U.S. policy, which were that Saddam was eventually going to have to be dealt with in a more fundamental way. And was there any policy change towards Iraq with the transition from the Bush or the Bush to the Clinton administration, or was it largely the same? So it was largely the same. I mean, but, you know, in the Bush administration, um, in that short period, um, relatively short from the end of the war to the end of the administration, um, there were some discussions of other kinds of options. But basically, you know, they began the process of, you know, OK, we dealt with that threat. We have to deter it from happening again. We'll toy with the idea of maybe there are some Iraqi oppositionists we could work with in the intelligence community to try to get him overthrown, but, you know, nothing particularly urgent. And that was basically uh, the same policy that essentially continued into the early Clinton administration. And was there any specific event or an uh, official government um, during the 1990s that made the removal of Saddam much more plausible, or was it simply the arc of unfinished business that came in the aftermath of the Persian Gulf War? Yeah, I mean, that's a good phrase, the arc of unfinished business, and that's pretty much it that, that grows more intensified. I mean, if anything, there were a couple of developments that, in terms of the failed U.S. efforts at promoting coups or, or uprisings against Saddam in 95, 96, that um, made, uh, it, it made it appear that any effort to get rid of him was uh, not going anywhere. And it caused some people to put those ideas even further into the background and say, all right, now we just have to live with him and contain him. Um, but others began to sort of draw different lessons. And so by, you know, as I point out in the book, as you know, by about 99, you have a group of folks in the Clinton administration, particularly in the NSC, who have come to the conclusion that the United States has to pursue regime change in a much more um, urgent way. Now, nobody was talking about an invasion at that time. But so it was basically just the progress of time and an eventual sense. And then I should say the other development was the, the, the gradual uh, decay of the sanctions regime that had been imposed on Iraq, which uh, gave some people the sense that if the United States didn't act, eventually Saddam would be out from under these constraints. He'd have more economic power. Um, he'd be able to, you know, re start moving again in the direction of his of uh, weapons of mass destruction. So that gave some urgency to the sense by the middle to the late 90s that something had to be done. 
And how much did the September 11 attacks affect the Bush administration's psyche and vigilance towards Iraq? Yeah, so that was absolutely decisive. It was it was just everything. I mean, I, I'm I'm convinced that there's no way we would have invaded Iraq absent uh, 9/11. Um, there's you know a narrative that the Bush administration came into office determined to get rid of Saddam, and they were moving in that direction anyway. And even without 9/11, they would have found a way to do it. I I kind of doubt that in terms of a large scale invasion. Certainly, there was again, sort of a continuation between administrations. The There was a continuation of this discussion that had started at the end of the Clinton term um, about more elaborate clandestine ways of promoting regime change, of supporting coups or opposition movements, uh, arming them more than the United States had done before. Uh, there was this Iraq uh, Liberation Act in 1998 that in theory made some funds available to do that kind of thing, broadcasting into Iraq, all of that. So that would have happened, but 9-11 was an absolutely profound shock to the psychology of the administration that um, put many of them in, you know, some of them, Dick Cheney most famously, in the mindset of thinking that essentially no real risk of uh, large-scale attacks from terrorists could be tolerated at all. And across the administration, even with folks like Powell and Rice, um, I think left them much less apt to oppose a move like that than they might have been. So the effect of 9-11 was uh, uh, dramatic. And did the early success in Afghanistan in the aftermath of the attacks sort of reinforce the belief in American military power and its ability to be successful in a potential invasion into Iraq? Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, um, you know, in the first uh, couple of months in Afghanistan were a little dicey in the sense that um, the United States, you know, was starting very slowly, started with intelligence capabilities built up to a, a larger military operation, but still was relying on proxy forces on the ground mostly. And after several weeks, people were starting to talk about a quagmire that the Taliban hadn't been overthrown. And then all of a sudden it all collapsed and caved in the United States, the, the U.S. allies took over the country, the Northern Alliance and others. The Taliban was kicked out. And most significantly for the Iraq case, uh, the United States cast about and found this guy, Hamid Karzai, who was acceptable to essentially all the non-Taliban actors and installed him as president, had a multilateral process uh, culminating in the Bonn conference in Germany that laid out some very elaborate and in retrospect, probably way too elaborate goals for the transformation of Afghan society. But so at that moment, you had what looked like international agreement on having done this. You have a lot of other international actors that are now going to be kicking in aid so the U.S. wouldn't be totally on the hook. And the United States went in, got rid of the enemy, managed to prop up a friendly local government and mostly leave. And that was the model that the advocates of the Iraq war had in mind. And that's in particular why the Afghan experience ended up as a very misleading but uh, tempting analogy that they could use to say, well, we can do the same thing in Iraq. It'll be easy. And do you think that the sort of hubris that came out of it surrounding American power and belief in the military motivate leaders and government to pursue a regime change invasion in Iraq rather than some of the other methods that have been brought up over the years? 
No, I don't. I mean, the, the, the hubris coming out of the Afghan operation? Yes. I don't think so in the, because they already had Iraq in their sights and they were already committed to whatever it took to do it. I mean, if, you know, uh, just a few days after 9-11 at the, the Camp David meeting on September 14, 15, um, you know, the DOD arrived there already with an idea that Iraq and Afghanistan were going to be twin early targets in the war on terror. And uh, they had already started, uh, I mean, really by the end of September, certainly November 2001, Rumsfeld is already starting to give orders to generate plans for uh, large-scale military invasion of Iraq. So they were already headed in that direction. Could could the opposite have happened if they really had been some kind of a quagmire in Afghanistan and the Taliban managed to hold out for much longer? Uh, it became a real mess and the U.S. had to send a lot more forces uh, would that have discouraged an Iraq operation? Maybe. I mean, I think it would have had to have been pretty messy. But no, the um, the particular it, it contributed to it and accelerated movement in that direction. But they were already moving in the direction of Iraq even before Afghanistan wrapped up. And do you think that the media played a role in sort of the fervor for an invasion into Iraq? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it also had a role in in not preventing the fervor uh, and and raising critical voices. I mean, in some cases, you you know, as as has become infamous, you've got cases like Judith Miller at the New York Times, who's being fed false intelligence by the Iraqi National Congress and some in in the U.S. government, and writing a long series of articles about Iraqi WMD that turned out to be badly misleading, but helped to convince the American people that that threat was real. Um, you have the Washington Post editorializing in favor of the war uh, and dozens of other medium-sized newspapers around the country joining that, some reluctantly, but a lot of them saying basically, look, this is something we have to do. Uh, and you have really precious few uh, critical assessments. In particular, you know, one of the things that having looked at this, I really... I wonder about, in retrospect, um, there was a little bit of this that came out, but there was plenty of information available. And a lot of people, I think, would have been willing to talk about the lack of preparedness for the post-war that was in place. So in some cases, you have like Jim Fallows writing a very prescient and famous article in The Atlantic called Iraq, the 51st State, where or just the 51st State, where he, he talked about, he, he talked to experts in post-war reconstruction and talked about the dangers of what might, what a post-war Iraq might be. But that was all kind of speculative. Um, there was very uh, specific and pointed reporting to be done, trying to talk to people inside the U.S. government and get information out to say, basically, we're not ready to do this. It's totally disorganized. Um, it could have informed the Congress and the American people. But part of the problem was the media also was operating in a larger political landscape, and the Congress had an opportunity to be much more active in its oversight, and it did not do so either. Um, you know, the congressional vote passed with a much bigger margin than the first Bush administration got for the Gulf War. Um, and not a lot of, you know, a lot of members of Congress didn't read the full intelligence briefings, all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't just the media. Uh, one of the biggest lessons out of this case is that the country as a whole 
did not stop and and be deliberative enough about the use of force. And why do you think that uh, weapons of mass destruction became the center focus for the invasion, despite sort of the spotty intelligence that was coming out of Iraq about it? Well, part of the reason is because the senior officials really believed it. I mean, the intelligence was spotty, but everybody assumed it wasn't. And this was true even of Democrats. I mean, by the end of the Clinton administration, you know, and having talked to a lot of these folks and, you know, talked to Democrats who were in the Clinton administration and right, you know, at the end of in 99, talking to State Department people who are not particularly advocates of the invasion, who were working at state as, as career diplomats during the Bush administration. They all say pretty much the same thing, which is that we all sort of thought it was true. I mean, there were very, very few real dissenting voices who said, no, he does not have significant programs and strong intentions of acquiring a range of WMD very quickly and probably has very significant stockpiles of chemical weapons, possibly some biological weapons, and is not that far away from nukes. That's what everybody assumed. And when you looked closely at the evidence, it became clear that that wasn't really... The evidence for it wasn't that strong. Uh, so the people that I really fault are those who did that, who who got some of the most detailed briefings. And this includes the president, President Bush. It includes Condoleezza Rice and others. And who we know from their statements reacted to the full intelligence briefing by saying, wow, I thought there was a lot more than that. That doesn't seem very compelling to me. If that was their reaction, they could and should have looked into it much more diligently. But apart from those moments, the general assumption was, um, you know, all, all the stuff we know about the limits to these intelligence reports is is retrospective. At the time, they just didn't think that way. And was there a specific leader or official in the Bush administration that really drove the decision making behind the decision to invade Iraq? So I wouldn't say one. I mean, you know, one way of answering that question is George Bush drove it. And as he has said, I mean, everything I found sort of agrees with what, you know, contrary to the idea that Cheney was manipulating him or Rumsfeld or others, or that there was a cabal of neocons. Uh, Bush really was in charge. Certainly he was influenced by some people. There were people that were doing a lot of stuff to create momentum through things like the intelligence that you were talking about to make sure the war would happen. But from fairly early on, Bush was very much in charge. He was in charge of the war planning. He had in his own mind that he was the one that had to make the decision. And eventually he approaches some of his senior officials and says, I think this is what I've decided to do. You know, we, I feel like we sort of have to do this. Do you agree? So the, the, the fundamental answer to your question is President Bush. Um, there were a group of people, including the vice president, including the undersecretary of defense for policy, Doug Fife, including the deputy secretary of defense, Paul Wolfowitz, and um, some individuals working within the policy shop at defense and in the vice president's office um, who were determined that this operation was going to happen and were pushing in that direction from the beginning. So, you know, in the sense of being sort of catalysts or entrepreneurs of the war, they certainly played that role. Um, if the president had decided at a certain point, actually, I don't think this is a great idea, um, that wouldn't have mattered. He would have just said no. And, and as with so many national security issues, those folks would have gone on advocating for their position behind the scenes, but they certainly didn't make the war happen. And 
Do you, you think that Saddam Hussein was sort of naive about U.S. intentions and policy towards his country? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think the evidence on that is pretty clear. And, and you know, it's um, compelling in this case and, and very uh, unique in the sense that not very often after a war do you capture the enemy leader, the head of state, and have that person for months and be able to interrogate them. And we have uh, interviews that have been done, books that have been written, articles that have been written by both the FBI and the CIA interrogators who uh, got a chance to talk to Saddam afterwards. And so, you know, to the extent that we take what he says seriously, I mean, having read a lot of those interviews, I think, you know, of course he's trying to shape history, but there's enough in there that's kind of odd and personal and sometimes um, self-critical that it seems like he's kind of telling more or less, I wouldn't say the truth, but sort of his truth at least, which is useful to know. And one of the things that comes out of that is, yeah, absolutely. He, he was naive both in the sense that all along from after the Iranian revolution, he has in the back of his mind, the notion that, Hey, America and me ought to be allies, frankly, because we both have Iran as a threat. Um, he did not somehow think that going into Kuwait would cause the reaction from the United States that it did. We helped him in that misconception at that time. But, and then during the nineties, he kept thinking, well, we can get back to maybe trying to be on a path to diplomatic engagement again. And, uh, the, the, the evidence is right up into the end, uh, in 2003, March, 2003, he refused to believe that the United States was about to do this, uh, that he, he was just convinced that at some level, um, and part of that related to the signals that had been sent out. So for example, one of the things that American officials would say is the only country in the world that congratulated Al Qaeda on this attack was Iraq. And Saddam claimed that this was in some sort of state-run newspaper, but it really had been put there by one of his sons, uh, a real extremist, um, and he had not approved of that and wouldn't have approved of it. Not that he liked the United States necessarily, but he knew that it would be a provocation. So part of his naivete extended to the way that his government conducted itself and the signals that it was sending to the United States all the way up to the point, and then I'll just finish by saying the ultimate thing he was naive about was the idea that he made this decision in the mid-90s to get rid of his weapons of mass destruction, but not to tell the world that he did it. And he was convinced that America had this all-knowing intelligence apparatus, and they would find out what he did. And so he would achieve his goal of convincing the Americans he didn't have it, but he wouldn't have to admit publicly that he didn't have it and thereby sort of defang himself in the eyes of Iran in particular. So at so many levels, for someone who's so brutal and such a Machiavellian political operator who could work so well within, uh, well in the sense of be uh, sort of effective in gaining and, and retaining power in his own context, he was incredibly simplistic in the way that he thought about the United States. And was there sort of a disconnect between uh, military and civilian officials on the U.S. government for what Iraq would look like in the aftermath of the invasion? So not so much a disconnect of what it would look like, more a disconnect of how much the U.S. would be involved in that, when, in particular how much the U.S. military would be involved in that. The military 
um, was under, I mean, and this is where the U.S., some, I will say, some senior U.S. military officers were naive about this in having the idea that, okay, we're going to do an Afghanistan-like thing. We're going to get in and get out. You know, there might be some small monitoring that goes on afterward, but the U.S. military is not going to be called upon to provide security in Iraq for a long period of time. And that that did not uh, disagree with, I mean, that's what was Donald Rumsfeld's goal as well. The problem is, it wasn't so much they didn't disagree, uh, or that they disagreed, it was that um, there was no real judgment made, no decision made in the U.S. government about exactly what was going to happen afterwards. There was, of course, a vast underestimation of the potential for civil war. And when the need came up for um, maintaining security, everybody turned to the U.S. military, which was now stuck in a long-term counterinsurgency situation that it had not anticipated because some senior U.S. officials, notably General Tommy Franks, convinced themselves that they could structure this in a way that they wouldn't, their forces wouldn't stay very long. And were there officials in the U.S. government that were raising objections or opposed the invasion? So not really. I mean, I'm not, you know, there was um, a couple of military officers who resigned, but quietly, and did not even raise objections inside the government because they believed that as military officers, that wasn't their place. I'm not aware of a single civilian leader who did so. There, in, in the United Kingdom, there were a couple of cabinet members in Tony Blair's cabinet uh, or um, in his government, uh, you know, ministers who resigned um, because of the war. But in the United States, you know, partly because it's a Republican administration, and but um, even with that, uh, no, not a single one. And did the failure uh, to get a UN uh, resolution uh, from the Security Council, you know, change the merits of the invasion at all? No, not particularly, because, you know, that was always, uh, I mean, George Bush would love to have had it. I mean, they got one resolution. They couldn't get a second that was a more explicit justification for force. But uh, they would love to have it. Tony Blair badly thought they needed it. Um, and at one point, George Bush is so concerned about Tony Blair's uh, political fortunes having endorsed the war that he said he offers him, look, if if you don't want to send your people, the British military, to participate in this, don't if you think that'll help, um, because he knows that if they don't get a second resolution, if they don't get a pretty clear U.N. mandate, that that'll be really devastating to Blair's domestic political standing. But no, I mean, for the most part, they wanted to get it if they could to cover what they were doing, not cover it, but justify what they were doing. Um, but it was never going to make a difference one way or the other as to whether it actually happened. And how quickly did the invasion sort of unravel from this quick decisive strike that was envisioned to a quagmire? And how long did it take for American leaders to realize the reality of the situation in Iraq? Yeah, well, that, and that's one, one of the interesting things, you know, that, that we forget is that there were a couple of months where it was pretty quiet. Um, the invasion happens, you know, middle of March, um, middle to late March. Um, and it's really not until early to mid-May um, that you, I mean, all along the way, it's starting to unravel. 
And so one of the things that becomes apparent immediately, but the violence doesn't start too later. One of the things that becomes apparent immediately as soon as they get in and start looking around is that this is a country that is in far worse shape than the advocates had led them to inspect. The infrastructure, the healthcare system, governance, uh, the looting happens pretty quickly and devastates many uh, Iraqi government buildings in Baghdad and other cities, you know, stripped down to the bare walls. Uh, a lot of officials flee and, you know, are nowhere to be found. So one of the things that becomes apparent immediately is there is no functioning state here that we can put kind of prop back up on its feet and just leave. That's not going to happen. But the implications of that still took a while to work themselves out. Um, it was obvious to some people on the ground, not so much to the people in Washington. And there was a period of, of several weeks of relative quiet when, you know, U.S. civilian officials are still driving around in unarmored vehicles, uh, going to restaurants, traveling the streets openly. Um, you know, the, the in great civil unrest has not started in part because a lot of political actors in Iraqi society, including former Ba'athist members, uh, senior military leaders and others, are trying to figure out what's going on. They're, they're sort of approaching the U.S. Uh, officials and saying, OK, what's going to happen here? Who's going to be in charge? What's going on? And I think also what becomes apparent in that time is it becomes apparent to the Iraqis and you know a number of folks I spoke with that – even if they had opposed the invasion, they expected the United States to arrive and begin to create a much better situation more quickly because the United States has this infinite power in their view. And when it became apparent that the United States was completely out to lunch, then a lot of actors on the Iraqi side then recalculated and thought, OK, well, in that case, this is going to get really nasty really quickly and I have to, you know – get my militia together, I have to get my arms together, I have to do whatever. There were some, like the Kurds, who had that perception even beforehand. But So anyway, there was a period of quiet, but it's behind the scenes apparent to the people on the ground that this is a powder keg and it's about to blow. But it's not until you start to get into May and June and then the summer that large-scale violence begins to erupt and it becomes obvious to everybody that it's um, it's going to be a quagmire. And, and finally, one thing that's kind of instructive in that time frame is that the U.S. military clings to its plans to start redeploying troops out of Iraq for several weeks uh, until it becomes apparent that the violence is just going to get too bad and they can't do that. And obviously the war would drag on for years. Um, and to kind of ask some concluding questions overall, what do you think the legacy of the Iraq war is? Well, I think uh, two big legacies, one international and one domestic. The international legacy is as a, an enormous stain on American power. Um, the United States, broadly speaking, uh, I'm an advocate of U.S. global engagement, and there's a lot of ways in which the U.S. global role is one of the most constructive. I mean, it depends on you know what the bar is for comparison. If we're comparing it to the ideal, of course, it falls enormously short. But comparing it to the record of just about every other great power in history, the role of American power has been constructive in a lot of important ways. But this is one of the most, even bigger than Vietnam, because the Cold War was a very different context. 
one of the biggest stains on American power and and catalysts for people to rethink the wisdom of American leadership that in, of the modern era. So that's one awful international uh, legacy. And then domestically, to me, the biggest legacy is uh, it is a reminder and a signal that the process of going to war in the United States and the U.S. political system is out of whack. It got out of whack during the Cold War because we thought we had to vest presidents with the ability to do things very quickly and very decisively. Um, and it, but it, but going forward, if the American people and their elected representatives want a bigger voice on whether the country goes and fights major international wars, something has to change. And that may even be as extreme as a constitutional amendment, um, because there's pretty wide agreement that the constitution, that what presidents have been doing is not inherently unconstitutional. Uh, it may take a new political consensus. It may take various things, but uh, domestically, I think the biggest legacy is as a signal that uh, if the United States as a political entity wants to discipline the way in which it goes to war, it's got some work to do. And do you think there was any good that, you know, has come out of the invasion of Iraq or has it been all been negative? Well, uh, that's a good and interesting question. I mean, uh, you know, the balance sheet is tremendously negative. Um, almost in, you know, there, you, you could find little rays of light of good that came out of the Vietnam War, too. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, when, one of the things I stress in the book is th there's a million stories of incredible human courage and compassion that you can find in the middle of this war uh, between Iraqis to one another uh, but certainly on behalf of the U.S. and coalition forces that are there, sacrifices that are made on behalf of Iraqi civilians sometimes, uh, incredibly Herculean efforts made to create a better society for the Iraqi people. So to me, if there's if there's any kind, I, I wouldn't even say silver lining, because that suggests that, you know, I think just fundamentally this was a terrible tragedy and and has very little positive legacy. Um but even in the midst of that kind of tragedy, there there is incredible human altruism that shines through in certain moments. That um, is is the only you know good news pieces of good news story that I think you can find in this larger reality. And something that you mentioned in your book that I found interesting uh, was a doctrine of policy negligence. Can you yeah. explain what that is and you know how it can kind of be applied to future case studies? Yeah, so I sort of, you know, one of the in in relation to the issue of going to war and the nature of going to war, one of the another one of the legacies out of this, which is nothing new, and there's been a lot of commentary about this in the last few years, is that there's really very little accountability for senior officials who oversee tragedies or disasters that could have been avoided with better planning, uh, and then go on to, you know senior professorships and become deans and presidents of universities and get on corporate boards and all the rest. So the problem, though, is, and the incredible problem, is that at the time these decisions are made, it's very, you know, it's essentially impossible to see how they're going to come out. And when you start with a, with a thing that I do, which is different than some people's starting point, that most of the senior officials honestly believed in their own minds 
that they were doing the right thing for the American country, but also for the Iraqi people, and that the outcome of this ultimately would be a much brighter future for Iraq. If that's what they thought, and if there's evidence that they were relying on that made it not a lunatic decision, then it's hard to avoid the conclusion that you say, well, okay, if your intention was good, then fine, then we'll go on and but that's not enough, I think. And and in looking for alternative ways of interpreting the issue of accountability, I, I came across this idea of um, negligence in a legal context. So, you know, like, for example, if the um, manufacturer of batteries uh, has information that the design of the battery means that they're going to melt down and cause fires and possibly hurt people, but goes ahead to produce them, um, then they can be held accountable for negligence. They can be legally held accountable in criminal or civil senses for uh, negligence. And I thought, well, how could you apply that to a national security context? And so that leads to this notion of policy negligence, which is specifically, you know, it draws on a couple of the basic criteria for negligence in a more general legal sense and, and tries to establish a few criteria to say, you know, have you uh, conducted a an absolutely rigorous search for all of the relevant information that bears on this decision? Have you allowed, encouraged, and certainly not punished dissenting views that are trying to raise risks about this? Those kinds of criteria. And if you don't meet them, then you can be quote unquote charged. And I don't mean this in a legal sense. Uh, with with policy negligence. And so what I'm trying to raise there is the idea that uh, alongside the general political lesson that we need a political process of going to war that is more rigorous, I think we also need a more rigorous set of standards for judging those who are making these decisions and holding them accountable so that at the time, in the same way that an executive at you know, BMW Motor Corporation, or now, you know, Toyota, right, given the recent examples of airbags and whatnot, they are doing their job with the sense in their minds, I will be held accountable for these choices. And if I ignore evidence that there is a danger here, I could be held legally responsible. That creates a different sense than, well, I'm kind of guessing, so I'll do my best, which is not enough, especially when you're talking about decisions of going to war. So that's why I think we need to establish some kind of a formal standard for accountability and avoiding negligence in the national security realm. And what lessons or takeaways, you know, did you find in your research uh, that you can give to, you know, future policymakers and leaders that are probably going to be studying these cases for a long time? Yeah. So, I mean, that would be basically it. It's like meet those criteria. Um, you know, just about every major decision-making tragedy or failure you can identify, certainly in the modern era of the United States and others of, you know, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the French experience in Indochina, they're all based on, um, in, in essence, kind of the, some of the major factors that I talk about in the book, the, some kind of overarching doctrine or ideology that, that impels you to move in a certain direction, some sense of urgency that we have to do this, it's not an option. We have to do it. And then some kind of crazy scheme that people say, well, we can do it cheaply. It won't be a big disaster because we can do it with this scheme. And the antidote to those kinds of things is just rigorous decision making. It is being committed 
to uh, a serious uh, sense of, a set of deliberations that bring out all the relevant information and allow objections to be raised and, and take the decision very seriously. I mean, a reasonable example of that is the, uh, there are a number from the first Bush administration, by the way, um, but a reasonable recent example is the Obama administration's uh, Afghan decision-making, which I think ultimately came out with some choices that are questionable, but at least the process I don't think is open to charges of policy, policy negligence because President Obama and, and uh, some of his senior officials did the best they could to inform themselves of what they were getting into. And I think because of that, he eventually pretty clearly, like in, in Bob Woodward's book, Obama's Wars, ends up thinking, okay, this is not a war we're going to win. So how do I handle that? So I think that's an example of that, that future decision makers can look to um, with contrary examples being, you know, the list of tragedies and disasters to say, uh, I am responsible for making absolutely the best, most informed, most open and inclusive decision that I can. That's the number one lesson. And you ended your book with a quote from a senior official from the Bush administration saying, you know, it will happen again. We'll do it again. Why do you think he said that? And do you, you think a policy failure like Iraq could happen again? Well, it just about did just happen with the uh, attack on, with the assassination of uh, General Soleimani in uh, Iran, uh, or in Iraq, the, the Iranian leader of the Quds Force. Um, I think the reason he said that was all the things we've been talking about, which is that the American political context is very vulnerable to kind of runaway commitment to a war without enough oversight from Congress, the media, or the American people, because we're eventually responsible for that. And I think he said it as a senior, former senior official, knowing how government works inside and how hard it is to make dissent happen when there's a famous quote from, which I think I have in the book, from uh, the um, National Security Advisor during the Kennedy administration, McGeorge Bundy, about the Bay of Pigs disaster. And his quote is something to the effect of, well, you know, I didn't raise dissent because when the president clearly leans in favor of something, it's my job to make it happen, not to convince him why he's wrong. And that's an attitude that exists throughout any executive branch, that they are there to do the president's will and make that happen. So I think both generally politically and because of bureaucratic politics, this is why he thought it would happen again. Those factors are very much in place today. Um, we could easily have gone to war with Iran in the last six months. We could easily go to war with them in the next six months, partly because these fundamental problems are not cured. Um, so I think, again, both on the level of what do we do as a country to ensure that there has to be more public deliberation before we go to war, and within an administration, what does a president do to create the kind of feedback loops that create better decisions those problems haven't come close to being solved. And my final question is, what was the most interesting part of your research, you know, for this book and kind of into the war in general? So by far the most interesting part is the kind of real human stories, the kind of anecdotal stories that, you know, a lot of which are in the book um, and that that people told me of trying to grapple with at times the the craziness of a process that was moving forward without any real decision points, um, some of the stories from the Pentagon planners who had to constantly 
reassess what they were doing, change their plans in, in light of Don Rumsfeld's kind of abuse and constant effort to cut back. The stories of, you know, nobody resigned over the war, but there were a few cases, of course, that I document in the book of people who wrote uh, memos warning of what could happen and the stories of what happened as they tried to raise those warnings. So that, you know, what I, one of the things I try to convey in the book is that very human story. Ultimately, uh, these these things are always have the dynamics that are captured by literature more than political science in the sense of human factors that guide how these kinds of things happen. And those kinds of stories were by far the most interesting uh, part of my research. So we just had that interview with Dr. Mazar. I personally really enjoyed it and I hope you did too. I think that, again, the decision-making process that went into Iraq is super important for, you know, future leaders and future policymakers because I think it reveals the problems of when decisions aren't, you know, prosecuted in a way that it needs to be, when decision-making is embedded in the way that it should be, when intelligent isn't looked at at the way it should be. You know, Iraq, I think at the end of the day, is a tragedy. I mean, that's all I can say. Um, obviously, Dr. Mazar thought it was worse than the Vietnam War. And I can certainly see that. And again, growing up, obviously, even when like the surge happened in 2007, 2008, I was, you know, eight years old, nine years old. So I really had no true understanding of what was happening. Like probably a lot of people my age didn't really understand what was happening. And it's super important, I think, especially for me as someone who would like to get into the field of foreign policy. And again, I would recommend for anyone that's getting into, you know, the foreign policy field. And I think is it's to read and to study these types of cases to understand the decision-making process and try and make sure that those things don't happen. I think Dr. Mazar expanded beyond that about what needs to change in order for these things to not happen, even though I think the bureaucracy that's developed you know, over the last 50 years, really, I sort of culminated into how these decisions sort of get made without Congress, without set the Senate. I think that's something that, you know, I thought about a lot is how war making powers have really shifted from a sort of congressional policy to a presidential policy. If you remember, you know, World War One, World War Two, you know, the Congress and the Senate voted on that to prosecute, obviously, with Vietnam, it was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, but that sort of shifted the power to the president with the War Powers Act to him be able to act, even though that was later revoked. Again, I think Congress and Senate has sort of like given off their responsibility of oversight, especially in the in the prosecution of war, to the president. And I think that's that leads to this point where, you know, again, no one's really held accountable. There's no accountability, really. And I think, again, Dr. Mazar expanded on that, but it sort of reveals this question of, well, how do we prosecute war in a, not necessarily the correct way, but in a way that doesn't lead to things like Iraq and Afghanistan. And it sort of just leads into these quagmires that, you know, we can't win. Uh, I'm sure I'll do an episode on Afghanistan, but it's just crazy to think that even like 2000 years ago when Alexander the Great was rolling through there and historians with him, you know, talked about the difficulties and the people of trying to fight in those. And I just did no one really think that 
you know, we would encounter the same problems that any empire or state that's tried to take Afghanistan or fought Afghanistan hasn't, you know, learned before. So I think it's just sort of the decision making like that and the sort of hubris that sort of captivated American foreign policy and American military power, especially after the Cold War, that's really led to serious problems in finding success. So... Again, uh, this is pretty much everything that I had. I personally really enjoyed this interview. I think that it's these episodes like this that are super important, um, I think, especially for young people. Um, and I hope that, you know, people that do listen sort of learn and would expand just beyond this and read more and more about, you know, foreign policy mistakes. If you're interested in that, I think that, again, I think this goes back to episode 13. Um when Dr. John Gaddis, when I asked him what advice he had, I think the biggest thing he said was read and learn the history and learn the case studies and immerse yourself because when you're in the real job, you're not going to have time to sort of do those things. So having that background and understanding the process and some of the mistakes that have been made in the past is going to be super important for, you know, people that are kind of getting into government work or really just any, you know, field in general, you're going to have to learn the mistakes that have been made in the past and, try and correct them. So uh, if you reach this point in the podcast, I want to definitely, or in the episode, thank you uh, for listening all the way through. Please, please, please give us a uh, rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. If you listen on that platform, uh, our goal is to get the 50 reviews before uh, the end of season one, which is probably in about two weeks or week and a half, week when this episode comes out. Um, so please help us uh, accomplish that. Or you can follow us on Spotify, you know, and you leave us a comment about what we can improve. Um, or you can email me. It's also on my Instagram. Um, yeah, I hope you definitely enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you uh, have any concerns, if you have any ideas or recommendations, please, please, please feel free to uh, message me. I will always answer. And it's always great to get feedback. I love hearing uh what I can improve. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult when you're self-evaluating what you need to do better. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode.